As you're being seated, go ahead and find your Bibles, open them up, turn them on with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Now, you may remember that we spent most of last year journeying through the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, and about six months ago, we hit pause on that journey. And when we last left Jesus, he was praying beneath the twisted canopy of the olive branches in the Garden of Gethsemane. Children in Jerusalem that particular evening were having a hard time going to sleep because they were excited about the Passover celebration that would be coming soon and seeing friends and seeing family. In the dungeons of Fort Antonio, there were two thieves who were also struggling to go to sleep that evening because they knew that tomorrow's sunrise would greet them with a Roman scourge, and before the sun would set again, they would be greeted with death. The disciples, meanwhile, they were having a hard time staying awake. Uh, Jesus had called them up to pray with them. He said, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. And they kept nodding off, and Jesus had to keep coming back and waking them up again, and then they would fall asleep again. Jesus was overwhelmed with his call. I think the, the weight, the weight of the world's sin would soon hang on his wrist and feet, and it was weighing on his soul at this time. And as the stars flickered through the branches, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed. And there were just a few quiet moments before the cross where everything was peaceful. In the distance, there was a winding path that led up to the garden known as Gethsemane, and you could see some torches begin to flicker as they walked up that path, and very soon came Judas and his band of temple guards, and suddenly the garden was awakened with activity, and in Luke chapter 22 and verse 47, here's what happens. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? My manual has identified at least eight different types of kisses in the Bible. Did you know that kissing was such a big deal in the Bible? All sorts of different types of kisses in the Bible. He says in Genesis 33, there's a kiss of reconciliation when the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, heal their rift. In Ruth chapter 1, there is the parting kiss when Ruth kisses Naomi. There's the kiss of peace, a proverbial kiss in the 85th Psalm. In Proverbs chapter 24, there's the kiss of honesty. In the Song of Songs, there are the kisses of passion. In Luke chapter 7, you find Mary of Bethany kissing Jesus' feet, and you have a kiss of devotion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, there is the kiss of fellowship when believers greet one another with a holy kiss. And then finally, we have here the kiss of betrayal. When Judas gives a signal to the guards to arrest Jesus, 
by giving him a kiss. Now, when it comes to kissing, personally, I'm, I'm a big fan. Now, not with you, okay, with my wife. Uh, when it comes to you guys, we're okay with a fist bump, a handshake, maybe a side hug occasionally, okay? But, uh, but, you know, whenever the minister said to me, you may kiss the bride, he didn't have to ask me twice. I, I, I was ready to go. You know why? In our society, a kiss is a symbol of a new family beginning. The groom kisses the bride, and whenever that kiss occurs, it symbolizes that a new family has been established. So here's a question for you in verse 48. How does something as tender, as beautiful, as a kiss of love become a kiss of betrayal? Jesus seems to even be taken aback. He's like, Judas, are you really betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It wasn't always like that. Three and a half years earlier, things were much different. Jesus was beginning His earthly ministry, and He called 12 men to leave behind their lives and their careers and to follow after Him and be His inner circle and be His disciples. And one of those 12 men was this man, Judas. And so if you put yourself in his sandals, Judas literally hung out with Jesus for three years. They spent probably almost every day together. They would cook meals together. They would laugh together. Judas was there when all the miracles took place. Whenever they were in the boat and they were worried about sinking and they didn't know if they would survive, Jesus came walking out on the water and Judas saw it. Whenever they, when Jesus healed the blind, Judas was right there watching. When Jesus said to Lazarus who had died, Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came out alive, Judas was there clapping and praising God with the rest of them that Lazarus was alive. He sat there on the mountainside when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and all that beautiful word, all those beautiful words that Jesus shared there on the Sermon on the Mount. Judas sat there and took it in, maybe even took notes on his scroll, perhaps even went so far as to watch the live stream. I don't know. But Judas was there. Talk about a direct link. Can you imagine if you have a question about theology, a question about Scripture? You just ask the Son of God. And his best friends, Judas' best friends, they would go on to change the world. They would go on to be the individuals that wrote Scripture. Other than Jesus, the disciples are arguably the most influential people who have ever lived. But Judas, on the other hand, would be forever remembered as a traitor. Now, what was the source of Judas' plunge into darkness? If you go over to John chapter 12, you see a glimpse of what happened. It's about a week earlier, and Jesus and the disciples have gathered for what I like to call a, a resurrection party. They were, they were celebrating the fact that Lazarus was alive. And so in my mind, it's a party. The music's playing, burgers are grilling, people are laughing, everybody's just having a good time. Well, there's a young woman there in the home. Her name is Mary of Bethany. And she decides that she wants to worship Jesus. And so she, ta she takes a 
very expensive bottle of perfume, about a year's worth of wages for a common person, and she opens that, and she begins anointing his feet with this perfume. And she is wiping his feet with her hair, and she is literally kissing his feet in worship. Now, Mary of Bethany had a sister, and her sister was a a little peeved at Mary of Bethany, perhaps because she thought it inappropriate what she was doing there in the home, or perhaps because she just wanted help and she felt like she had been left all alone. And so Martha starts saying to Jesus, would you please tell Mary to join me in the kitchen? Tell her to get up and quit worshiping. And Jesus basically says to Martha, leave her alone. Well, in this scene, and it's easy to almost hydroplane right over it, but as Martha is getting on to Mary, Judas also decides to pile on. Look at John 12 and verse 4. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now make sure you catch verse 6, because here is where you get to see inside Judas' psyche. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Now notice several things about Judas. Number one, he had become really good at criticizing He piled on Mary of Bethany. Number two, he lacked empathy. He didn't really care about the poor. He didn't care about the feelings of this dear woman. Number three, notice that he had reached a position of authority. He was in charge of the money. Fourthly, he was a thief. And fifth, we discover that he really didn't like being told no. Because when Jesus rebuked him, he became very upset, and he wound up conspiring with Jesus' enemies to betray him. When I was in college, I, I took a lot of courses in psychology. And so I always, I always am fascinated by the story of Judas. Because it just fascinates me how someone so close to Jesus could do these things. And so I like to kind of dive into his head a little bit and putting on my Dr. Lash hat, I think I think Judas was extremely entitled. Perhaps even narcissistic. One of those individuals that literally thinks the world revolves around them and that everybody owes them something all the time. Now, if you think about our society, entitlement is a huge issue, is it not? Big issue in government, big issue in families, big issue in marriages, big issue in workplaces and school. It's a huge issue in our society. In fact, show of hands here, how many of you uh, in your life right now are having to deal with somebody who suffers from entitlement? Anybody? Okay, okay, okay. How many of you in your life have ever been hurt by someone's actions who was a very entitled or narcissistic person. How many? Okay. 
and the rest of you just haven't experienced it yet, it's going to come one of these days. Entitlement is a huge issue, and entitlement is really at the root of sin. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Gethsemane. What was Adam and Eve's sin? Was it eating a piece of fruit? They picked the wrong fruit in the produce section? Was that their sin? Not really. Their sin was inside. Their sin was, first of all, disobeying God and saying, okay, God has said these are the rules, but this doesn't apply to us. And then the second sin, which was a bit more subtle, is that they ate the piece of fruit thinking that it would make them as God. And so at the root of their sin was selfishness, entitlement. Now, something you should know about the entitled person in your life. Okay, make sure you catch this. On the outside, they appear to be very confident, self-secure, and happy. But inside, they're actually insecure, unhappy, and scared. You say, why? How's that add up? Because if you're living your life in the tentacles of selfishness, selfishness will always lead you to sin, and sin will always lead you to guilt. Now, how do we deal with our guilt? When it comes to guilt, we have two options. The first option is we can confess our sin before God. We can say to God, I admit that I have done wrong. I bring this to you. I turn from my sin, and I turn to your righteousness. And we can seek God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace. Here's the second option. We hide it. In fact, that's what Adam and Eve immediately did. After they did what? After they ate the fruit, they tried to hide from God. And so we can hide our sin. We can hide our guilt. We can kind of push it down inside of us. And the more that we push that down, the further we plunge ourselves into darkness. And then frequently what we begin to do is we have to criticize everybody else because it makes us feel better to try to tear them down. I don't believe that Judas' relationship with Jesus was grounded in love. I think that his relationship with Jesus was a pursuit of opportunity. He was riding the Jesus train, hoping that Jesus would take him to his preferred destination in life, failing to realize that Jesus is not a vehicle to take you somewhere. Jesus is the destination. Now, what, what did Judas want? Well, it appears that what Judas wanted was money, power, position, and fame. That seems to be what he wanted. And here's the irony. The money, power, and fame that he thought he needed had no ability to make him feel better. But loving the one he rejected was in reality the healing that he needed. So here's how his life plays out. Selfishness takes up residence in his heart. Selfishness bought a sectional, big screen TV, and a bag of pork rinds, and just started hanging out in Judas' heart. He started seeing the world through the lens of himself, and it all revolved around him. 
He began pursuing relationships for opportunity rather than love. And as a result, he probably had a long line of broken relationships. And if you were to talk to him, it was probably always someone else's fault. His entitlement then led him to false ethics. Now make sure you catch this. Entitlement will always lead you to a breach of ethics. Because whenever you begin to think that everything revolves around you, it will eventually lead you to see the rights and wrongs of life with a skewed perspective. And so his entitlement led him to false ethics where he began to steal from the money bag. Literally, he was taking money out of the offering plate. And with each action, with each action, his insecurity and guilt plunged him further into darkness until finally his lips pressed against Jesus' cheek in an unthinkable act of betrayal. Ultimately, his friends would go on to change the world. His life would spiral out of control and it would end in suicide. Seems like every week these days, I get a text, I come across an article, someone tells me of some news, and the subjects are becoming too familiar. A well-known pastor resigns because of moral failure. A church struggles with sexual abuse within the congregation. A marriage ends in the betrayal of adultery. A young person dies far too young at their own hand. Author Carrie Newhoff asked the question, how exactly does this happen? And he writes in a recent blog, and he's writing in the context of leadership and ministry, but here's what, here's what he writes, and I think it applies to virtually every situation in life. He says, you got into this for the right reasons. I know you did. Everybody does. But somewhere along the way, it's too easy to lose your soul. How exactly does that happen? Well, it's a subtle art. Most leaders who sell their souls aren't 100% on the right track one day, and the next day wake up in someone else's bed. It doesn't usually work that way. Selling your soul starts with compromise. You look at a little porn once, okay, twice, okay, a little more, and soon it's a habit. You flirted with her once, and then again, and then you were emotionally entangled, and then you started justifying your impulsiveness. If they only knew the pressure I'm under, they'd be this way too. You told yourself and, and you repeated that to yourself the next day and the next. You swore a bit because you think cussing a little doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. But now your internal dialogue is just so foul. You had one drink, then the other, then every Friday, then most days. You blew your stack at the meeting the other day, but man, they were being dumb. And you're the leader, and, and you can get away with it. And, and before you know it, 
A thousand little compromises left you compromised. You've gotten so ugly, you don't even recognize yourself in the mirror. That's how a kiss that is meant to be a symbol of love transforms into an act of betrayal, void of love. But now there's something that I want you to notice. And if you haven't heard what I've said up to this point, or if you're feeling an extreme amount of weight upon your soul as I speak, I want to make sure that you notice this in verse 49. Because the story continues. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed them, healed him. You see, when Judas kissed Jesus and they were about to arrest Jesus, his followers immediately drew their swords. And we find out in other gospels that this was Peter. <laughs> Peter is ready to go to war, man. We're going we're to get after it right now. And he swings that sword. And luckily, Peter was a bad soldier because he missed the guy's head. He took off an ear. Can you imagine this scene? This, this is all unfolding there in the garden. So now what does Jesus do? Jesus responds with compassion. He heals the man who's about to arrest him. Now fast forward a few hours to Golgotha. The soldiers have literally just driven nails through Jesus' hands and feet the crowd is mocking him as life fades from his body. And Jesus on the cross in excruciating pain responds with compassion and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Some scholars believe that this was a continual cry on the cross, that Jesus continued to cry, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. The beauty of Christianity is that it's a story of grace. Your life does not have to be the twisted story of one consumed with his entitlement to the point of death. Your life story does not have to be a tragedy. Your life story can be a beautiful story of love and grace. That's the story of Christianity. Judas' life didn't have to end the way that it did. He could have repented. He could have been saved. The arms of Christ were open even to those who nailed His hands. Father, forgive them. The reach of grace never, your rebellion never goes beyond the reach of grace. And I want you to know this today. I want you to make sure you hear this. I want you to know this for yourself. And if you're wrestling with somebody in your life that seems to be plunging further and further into darkness, I want you to know this. You don't have to live your life behind a mask of guilt and shame. You don't have to pretend to be somebody because you're so scared that if people see the real you, they will reject you. You can be the person that God created you to be and you can be a new creation in Jesus Christ because He can take the old and remove it and He can make all things new. He can replace your guilt and shame with His love and grace. 
And that's why we talk about the gospel in the terms of freedom. That's why we talk about salvation in the terms of new life and and a new beginning because all things can be made new. You can receive forgiveness for your past and purpose for your present and hope for your future. You say, but Lash, I've done some things. My life story is not something that I'm proud of. I've I've done some things. There, There may be some consequences with which you live. When we do things here on earth, there are consequences. Sometimes because of our actions, there are relational boundaries. Sometimes because of our action, there are legal consequences. There are opportunities that may have been available to us at one point that are no longer available to us because of our, because of our actions. But your heart, your heart doesn't have to be dark. Jesus offers us grace, hope, forgiveness, healing, a new life. You say, well, how do I receive it? Well, you start by quit pretending that you have it all together. Quit pretending that you're God. You admit your sin to the Lord. and You place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, trusting in Him and Him alone rather than in your self-sufficiency and in your competency. You trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And you commit your life to following Him. That's the initial step of faith in Christianity. We call it the step of salvation. That moment when you begin a journey with God. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because you're His for all eternity. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me please? The band's going to come and they're going to lead us in some worship. Before we, before we sing, I want you to know a couple of things. First of all, I want you to know that I love you. And I want God's best for your life. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, I'm here at the front. It's always my joy to pray with you and to walk life's journey with you. And it could be that as I've talked today, the Lord has really shown you some things. And you come, you are now at a point where you realize you need to take that step of salvation in your life. You need to call out to God. This is your moment. You say, Lash, I'm not sure what to say. Just call out to God with sincerity in your heart. You might say something like this, Heavenly Father, I admit to you that I have sinned. I am not you, and I ask for your forgiveness. And this morning in this church, I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord, and I'm asking you to save me. And Lord, I'm asking for a new beginning, a walk with you, and a life in you. Please save me today. Pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to call anybody out. I'm not going to embarrass you. 
But if today is your day of salvation, I would like to know. So as people have their heads bowed around the room, if today was your day of salvation, I'm just going to ask you to look up at me and let me make eye contact with you. I won't call you out. I won't embarrass you. But today was your day of salvation. Would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you. You are our Lord. You are our God. And we are so very, very grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we worship. Amen.